Hello, and welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled Patrice Cullors versus Shelby Steele, a tale of two black voices in America. October 2020 is the date, and my name is Bell Avis. Before I get into the podcast, I just want to make the announcement that the conservative historian book, The Collected Works, is available on Amazon. Just type in Conservative Historian Collected Works and go at the Amazon website and then decide whether you want the hardcover or Kindle versions. And now, on to our podcast. This morning on the Media Wires was an article concerning a deal signed by Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Cullors. According to Variety, quote, The co-founder of Black Lives Matter has signed her first overall deal with Warner Brothers Television Group. Characterized as multi-year and wide-ranging, the pack will see colors develop and produce original programming across all platforms, including broadcast, cable, and streaming, unquote. The content was described as, quote, black voices, especially black voices who have been historically marginalized, are important and integral to today's storytelling. Our perspective and amplification is necessary and vital to helping shape a new narrative for our families and communities, unquote. It should be assumed that Warner Brothers and their corporate parent, AT&T, know what they are getting. Colors has described herself as a, quote, trained Marxist, unquote, though that does not seem to preclude signing this deal with a corporation that has often extolled the profitability principle. Also curious about whether the powers that be is whether Warner execs have read this color's quote. Quote, policing has never been about public safety. Its origins are rooted in social control, the denial of people's human rights, securing U.S. borders, recapturing escaped, enslaved Africans, and upholding racist, homophobic, and transphobic laws. Unquote. If Colors is correct, we have to assume that the roughly 700,000 police officers within the United States are engaged as color states. Even considering those operating in predominantly white enclaves or away from borders, one would think that the number of incidents would be far higher than the less than 30 per year of police officers killing unarmed black people. This ratio is about one police officer out of 23,300 involved in such an incident. Additionally, the, quote, communities and families, unquote, mentioned in the press release is interesting. Do Warner and Colors mean the typical American family as we would understand that term today? Or this from the BLM website? Well, before it was removed from the BLM website, quote, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, unquote. Note the word collectively. BLM will not admit this, but the term is often a stand-in for socialism. And with a, quote, trained Marxist, unquote, that assumption is relatively safe. We assume that is why it was removed from the BLM website. And interesting that throughout the summer, it was still existing on the website, but was removed weeks ahead of this deal with the corporation of Warner and AT&T. 
It should also be noted that, as we shall in an African-American documentary later on in this podcast, the entire narrative around the Michael Brown shooting, the incident which gave impetus to callers and other BLM leaders, was falsified. One of the storylines in this era of Michael Brown, Jacob Blake, and George Floyd is that black voices are not heard in today's media. History is another story. Richard Wright's native son and black boy were required reading in high schools going back to at least the 1980s. As one teacher noted, B.H. James, writing for teaching.org, notes, quote, For the past two years, I have had the pleasure of teaching Richard Wright's 1940 novel, Native Son, to high school seniors. I did not choose this book. I inherited the senior 1B English classes from an excellent veteran and now retired teacher and good friend, Susan Halseth. I also inherited from Susan her reading list and teaching the books with which she filled her syllabus, Native Son included, has been a delight. Unquote. Native Son was written in 1940 and continues to hold resonance and is commonly taught throughout high schools today. Barbara Maranzani, writing for History.com, comments on the impact back in 1976 of Alex Haley's Roots. Quote, The phenomenon began a few months earlier with the publication of Roots, the saga of an American family, released in the fall of 1976 during Americans' bicentennial. It was an overnight commercial and critical success. The book would spend more than four months on the New York Times bestseller list, sell more than six million copies, be translated into more than 35 languages, and earn Alex Haley both a National Book Award and a Pulitzer Prize, unquote. In addition to the book, there was the phenomenon of the TV miniseries. White executives were actually concerned about the reception to a country that, at the time, was over 80% white. Quote, when the series premiered on Sunday, January 23, 1977, more than 28 million viewers watched the first episode. But word of mouth, positive reviews, led to an increased daily uptick in viewership as the saga unfolded. The January 30th finale of Roots captivated more than 100 million Americans, more than half the country, and nearly 85% of all television households, breaking all previous rating records. It remains the third most watched single episode of all time in American history. Unquote. And keep in mind, the miniseries was released in 1977, over 43 years ago. From 1984 to 1992, one of the most popular TV shows of all time was The Cosby Show, a show about a successful black family led by a lawyer mother and doctor father. The Cosby Show spent five consecutive seasons as the number one rated show on television. According to TV Guide, the exhibition was, quote, TV's biggest hit in the 1980s and almost single-handedly revived the sitcom genre and NBC's rating fortunes, unquote. We get it. Today, Bill Cosby is rightly discredited for heinous actions that have recently come to light. We also understand that the show espoused, well, basically middle to upper class values that have now become either anathema to the left or that the show was somehow whitewashed. 
That does not change the fact that tens of millions of white families tuned into a show containing arguably one or two white characters with each episode. In 2017, a sitcom called Last Man Standing about a conservative outdoor blogger was canceled. But not Blackish, a show featuring an African-American family who had an inordinate love affair with the Obama administration. As noted in The Guardian, quote, The program follows Andre Dre Johnson, a wealthy executive and his family through the usual sitcom misunderstandings, squabbles, and moral dilemmas. So far, so Cosby show. But Blackish's creator, Kenya Barris, has made a small tweak that sets the program onto an altogether more groundbreaking track. Race is not treated as an incidental background detail, but part of the show's identity. The Johnsons are not a family who happen to be black, but a family who are black. If that doesn't sound revolutionary, it's enough to ensure this broad, warm-hearted comedy confronts issues of race, class, and culture every week, unquote. As of this uh, podcast in October 2020, there are advertisements all across Twitter for the premiere of Blackish, a show that is, is now into, I think, roughly its fifth or sixth season. As of this writing, again, HBO, a division of Warner Media, which is a division of megacorporation AT&T, already mentioned, also signing colors, is prominently touting Lovecraft Country. HBO describes this show as, quote, one man's journey across 1950s Jim Crow America. A road trip in search of his missing father turns into a fight to survive racist terrors, unquote. Before that, HBO's promotional machine was aimed at their Watchmen revival. Quote, after a white supremacist attack on local police department, which leaves only two surviving cops on the beat, laws are passed that allow the cops to hide their identity behind masks. One of these cops, Angela Barr, adopts the identity of Sister Knight and fights racists while dealing with the decades-long legacy of the vigilantes. Unquote. So again, as I'm typing this, I look to my other screen and see Spotify sporting the Michelle Obama podcast as of this writing. Her book, Becoming, was the second highest selling book on Amazon in 2019. Brock and Michelle Obama also have a deal with Netflix to provide original programming. CBS All Access, a division of media giant Viacom, most prominent new show is the latest Star Trek installment featuring an African-American female lead. So when Patrice Cullors and Warner Brother release their original content in order to provide greater uh, listening to black voices, they are going to be in very strong company. Now, all of this is to the good. The conservative historian would applaud all of that. And the contention here is not to say that black voices were not marginalized at a point in our history. Of course they were. Colors is not even wrong in that contention. But where she is wrong is that contention still exists today. African Americans consist of 13% of the total U.S. population. If Joe Biden gets elected, all signs say he will not be able to finish his term. Then the United States will have featured two of the last three presidents to come from this 13%. At what point do we decide the voices are not marginalized, but are, in fact, prominent. 
BLM, and by extension, the new generation of those profiting from racial divisions, such as Ibram X. Kendi and politicians, including Ilan Omar and Iyana Presley, understand that it is not racial animus that fuels their profits, but the goodness of the majority of Americans. A vast number of those marching in the BLM protests are white. Either they wish to assuage white guilt, or they genuinely want to see equality and racial justice. What is missing from all of this talk about the racism within the United States is just how many good people there are within the United States and how many people, including this podcaster, who wish us to see racial equality. But what if either true equality is achieved or America moves to a post-racial society? This writer embraces both goals. Then, if that was the case, Kendi, Colors, Michelle Alexander, the author of The New Jim Crow, Nicole Hannah-Jones, the author of The 1619 Project, and the original race hucksters such as Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton, and even white writers such as Robin D'Angelo will be out of business. No massive book sales, no selling of curricula to the high school districts, no $10 million from the Twitter creator, which was uh, lavished upon Kendi, and no lucrative production deals with mega media corporations. There is simply too much at stake to ever let the controversy abate or to look at alternatives. So let's provide an alternative view. Let's provide an African-American filmmaker who is actually seeking the type of platforms that the likes of Colors have just received. Speaking of these alternative views, when a conservative narrative of recent black history is presented, it receives quite a different reception than the mega deals signed by Colors or the Obamas. In a separate announcement coming a few days before the Warner Colors deal and involving another company, Amazon, who also focuses on developing and platforming original content, this concerned author Shelby Steele and his son Eli. As described in the Wall Street Journal by the editorial board of the paper, quote, as a documentary, what killed Michael Brown has everything going for it. Its subject is timely, about the pre-George Floyd killing of Michael Brown by a police officer that set off riots in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014. It's written and narrated by Shelby Steele, the prominent African-American scholar at the Hoover Institution, and directed by his filmmaker son, Eli Steele. Its subject, race relations, is a significant fault line in this year's presidential election. One reason the Steele scheduled their film release for October 16th. One problem. What killed Michael Brown doesn't fit the dominant narrative of white police officers killing young black men because of systemic racism. As a result, says the younger Mr. Steele, Amazon rejected it for its streaming service. We were canceled plain and simple, unquote. And why was this the case? As Wall Street Journal columnist Jason Riley noted, quote, it was almost absolute, Mr. Steele said, the language, he was executed, he was assassinated, hands up, don't shoot. It was a stunning example of poetic truth of the lies that a society can entertain in pursuit of power. Despite ample forensic evidence the grand jury reports, and the multiple Obama-era Justice Department investigations 
clearing the police officer of any wrongdoing. The progressive agenda may not be the black agenda, but it is the media's agenda. Sadly, speaking plain truths about racial inequality in America today remains controversial, unquote. But is Steele, whose father is black and mother of European descent, just some crank with a grievance? Does he not benefit from the controversy, as I have alluded to other black authors? Steele is a Robert J. and Marion E. Oster Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. He's the author of five award-winning books and has assisted his son's documentary career. After attending the University of Utah, where he earned a Ph.D. in English in 1974, Steele was offered a 10-year position at the university, but turned it down because of hostility encountered as part of an interracial couple in Utah. Steele has both encountered racism, but also challenges the opinions about it held on the left. Consider the following statement by Colors. Quote, Many of us believe that Black Lives Matter would move this country to not only reckon with white racism, but to usher in new laws and practices that would curb vigilantism and law enforcement violence. But instead, white nationalism was nurtured and began to take root among the American people. Unquote. In Color's world, progress comes not through individual agency or even movements such as hers. It comes from controlling the institutions that hold power, which is the ultimate goal. Contrast that with the focus of Steele. Quote, since the social victim has been oppressed by society, he comes to feel that his individual life will be improved more by changes in society than by his own initiative. Without realizing it, he makes society rather than himself the agent of change. The power he finds in his victimization may lead him to collective action against society, but it also encourages passivity within the sphere of his personal life. Unquote. In Color's worldview, the missing ingredient is always individual agency. The agency's presence is the only way to understand the difference between Barack Obama, Oprah Winfrey, Eric Holder, or Neil deGrasse Tyson, or even a Shelby Steele, and several criminals who are often upheld as role models even to the exclusion of those named just above. Because Colors is a founder of Black Lives Matter, and Steele, a conservative writer about racial issues in America, this debate can definitely be about racism within America. But the broader context is the contention between individual decisions, individual agency, the person as an individual against that of greater society, of greater culture, or greater systems. Race is just the best way to frame the debate for the left. Now, Bernie Sanders, and by extension a little bit Elizabeth Warren, have tried to set the parameters about this individual agency versus society around class, around, if you will, that of which began with Rousseau, emanated through Marx, and this is kind of embodied today in individuals such as Bernie Sanders and AOC. But this tactic is millennia old because essentially it's a tactic of wealth envy. Yet twice, Democratic voters, forget the general uh, voting class, but Democratic voters have rejected Bernie Sanders and by extension, this brand of politics. 
And he was rejected for the profoundly unpopular Hillary Clinton, and then rejected again for Joe Biden, a candidate who had lost three presidential primaries before 2020. Now, another tactic is not just class, but it's to set the narrative along gender lines. Yet here's where the Republicans have performed better than expected. A Republican appointed the first female Supreme Court justice, Sandra Day O'Connor. Republican senatorial ranks have been graced by the presence of Elizabeth Dole and Kay Bailey Hutchinson. Governors, ranging from Suzanne Martinez to Christy Nome to Nikki Haley, have all been under the Republicans' banner. Even under Donald Trump, one of the most impressive displays of poise, intelligence, and grace was exhibited by a conservative jurist, that would be Amy Coney Barrett, at the recent nomination hearings in front of the Senate. It is simply more difficult for the left to try to make that case along gender lines. But it is within the context of race, where those who wish to create societal change, not through the individual, but rather through institutions, through the system, and especially the federal government, most easily reside. Not only do African Americans hew far more towards the Democrats than the Republicans, especially after 1932 and 1964, but white Americans, even conservatives, are ashamed, as they should be, of the legacy of slavery. There is a 1619 project that gets Pulitzers, but there is not a similarly discussed Seneca project dating from 1848. Race is the best way for the left to accrue power. It is not surprising that in the person of colors, we see the true form of intersectionality, a combination of race, gender, and in her case, classism, all working towards institutional change. But again, she didn't find poor lives matter. She didn't found women's lives matter, both of which she could have been in a position to do. No, she founded Black Lives Matter. And this is the core of the debate. Is the United States a nation where individuals have the opportunity to prosper through their own choices. Or as Steele puts it, quote, there also comes a time when he must stop thinking of himself as a victim by acknowledging that existentially his fate is always in his own hands, unquote. The alternative is to hand over the reins of powers to those like colors who would preach victimization and use governmental coercive powers to achieve their ends. And of these competing visions, the one held by colors versus the one held by steel, one corporation is enabling colors while the other is squelching steel. Thank you for listening to this podcast. This is Bell Avis. We encourage you to go to www.conservativehistorian.com for more columns, essays, videos, and podcasts. Once again, thanks for listening.